News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, let's talk about development and density and affordable housing. These are all huge issues for us in BC. Well, big change happening that was announced yesterday. The provincial government is making changes that would allow for the purchase of land along transportation hubs for housing, for schools, for mixed-use development, for commercial services. So they actually had to make changes to the Transportation Act for this. Those changes were introduced yesterday. Rob Fleming is the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, and he says the aim here is to increase the level of affordable housing we would be able to strategically acquire land and then be able to build it in partnership with the nonprofit housing society or BC housing or a private developer. This is looking ahead, looking at our unique land challenges and promoting affordability all at once. Okay, that's Rob Fleming, the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. This is a big change. Let's talk about the impact of this. Joining us now is Brent Totteron, who's a city planner, urbanist at Todd Urban Works and former Vancouver chief planner. Brent, thanks for being back with us. No problem at all. Glad to be here, Simi. What did you think about this? I think it's a good move. I think it's a strategic move. A lot of people probably assumed that the government could already do this. And and indeed, TransLink actually has, I believe, the power to do this. They've been talking, TransLink's been talking about acquiring land and selling it um, and and taking uh, some of that land lift that comes when you actually site a station in a specific place and giving it to the public um, uh, interest rather than uh, being like winning the lottery for a private landowner. Uh, but uh, but Chancing hasn't really pulled the trigger on that as a real estate uh, idea. And that was brought up in the context of trying to fill the gap on the amount of revenue we needed to actually build all the transit we need. So it was considered a revenue stream. What What the ministry seems to be doing now is talking about it as a city building or a region building exercise. The idea of actually achieving more density around public transit to get more ridership, to reduce our carbon footprint, dependency on automobiles, et cetera, but also to, to actually deliver on the affordable housing uh, that is part of their shared portfolio with the Ministry of Housing. So it seems like a good flexibility to have, a good strategic move. The only thing I, I raise my eyebrows about is in reading the ministry's media release, it sort of says this will deliver more, more compact, sustainable development. And what I would say is that it might. It certainly uh, is another, another tool in the tool belt that could lead to better outcomes, but it's not exactly guaranteed that it will lead to better outcomes. It's just more flexibility, uh, and uh, it's particularly long-term flexibility because right. I don't see the province starting to try to buy land that's already owned by developers on the Broadway corridor, for example. I don't think that'll happen. You know, by that point, the land is so valuable that it's very hard for anybody to buy it, including the public. What this is, I think, really about is being able to buy land strategically years in advance of announcements around future public transit. Frankly, when the land is still more affordable, because when you try to buy it after the uh, announcements have happened, it's a it's a free for all. It's a it's a it's a land rush. It's a it's a massive exercise where people are willing to spend a huge amount of money right. to take but, advantage of the transit stations. Right. It seems to me we like what took us so long to learn this 
lesson because we watched this happen with Canada Line. We have watched it happen with Expo Line, Millennium Line, like mm-hmm. you name it. And it was almost like we were waiting for market forces to do it when clearly we could see it was needed before that. I think there's been a bit of ideology. The government should stay out of this. Um, the system, you know, the government provides the infrastructure and private property owners and developers can take advantage and we shouldn't compete with private developers. Um, and, but as far as I know, there hasn't even been a, a pushback from private developers about this idea. It's, it's basically just a way to achieve the kind of mixed-use density around transit and, and serving transit that will lead to better transportation outcomes, better climate mitigation outcomes, and better affordability outcomes. But you're quite right. I, I was, as I say, I was, my first reaction was I didn't know that you they couldn't do that right. so of course they should do that <laughs> right because i know that translink has as you pointed out had the ability to buy property for future transportation projects like say for skytrain stations along the broadway line it was well known they had bought that land you know quite a few years ago but then that's it well translink and remember translink and the ministry are two different things related to two different things translink uh, has not and the ministry have both been able to buy property for the actual space for the station, space for the line, but they haven't been able to buy land around the station uh, or anywhere within like a five or ten minute walk of a station because that's how big your your your, your pedestrian shed is for tra- for walkability to public transit. So all of that land within a five or ten minute walk is is increases in value substantially when the public makes the investment to put in public transit. And usually it's private sector owners that sort right. of win the lottery for that. Is it too so late tra- for, the broad- for the Broadway line? Well, it's certainly too late to get it for a reasonable price. The, the minute those, uh, that line was announced, uh, land along the entire corridor went up in value massively. The minute the station areas were announced, announced land specifically around those station areas went up even more. So like I say, this is not about... Um, this is not about having, I think, flexibility to buy land. Plus, the land is all in the hands of developers now. And the real question is, uh, and this is, by the way, a big elephant under the table, a big wild card. Owning the land is only part of the picture of whether you can build enough uh, density around transit to support public transit ridership. Of course, who has the control about how much density uh, can actually be built is, is the other major part. So even if the province owns the land, technically, um, it's still subject to the plans uh, along the corridor by the local municipalities. Okay, but then Brent, doesn't this kind of signal perhaps the area that we're going? We know that David Eby has indicated his willingness to take that power somewhat away from them and make these projects happen. They don't even have to take the power away from them. The, 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 The province has never been subject to the powers of the local municipalities. They are immune, if you will, because cities are creatures of the province under our legal system. But there's always been a culture that even though the province could ignore the local plans, ignore the, uh, the, the aspirations of the local city hall, uh, they haven't generally done that because there's been a sort of a, 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 an interest in working together. But certainly with, so the wild card in this is not only can the province now buy the land, mm-hmm. but they can also choose at, at whatever level they want to ignore uh, the prevailing plan. They can build what they want. They don't even have to take away powers like David Eby's been talking about. They can simply choose to ignore it. But that's a, 
becomes a culture and a relationship issue between the province and the city, which is always, as a former chief planner for Vancouver, it's always been an interesting conversation, as you can imagine, between local municipalities (laughs) and the province. I can imagine. Okay, so there's obviously a lot more to come on this particular issue. Brent, thanks so much for your time on it today. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Brent Totter is a city planner, urbanist, and former Vancouver chief planner, talking about these changes to the Transportation Act that will allow the purchase of land along transportation hubs for the provincial government. They can do this to build housing, schools, commercial services, other mixed-use development, and that is a big change, but there is more to come, as Brent pointed out. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about water, shall we? This has become a hot topic for, I think, a lot of homeowners, people who love their gardens. And that is because this week we heard the Metro Vancouver Regional District is only going to allow residents to water their lawns once a week this summer instead of twice. And this is in the wake of our record-breaking heat that we had last summer, and they feel like we need to, well, preserve our water supply more sustainably. So let's talk about that. Is is doing it this the best way for water efficiency? Joining us now is Dr. John S. Richardson, professor at UBC in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. Thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, good morning. Is this a good way to conserve water? Well, it's a well, it's one of the ways. So, um, you know, I think we have to look at this as an, kind of an equation. Um, you know, we have the supply side of things. So, how much water can we store in the mountains um, as a water supply? And the other is how much do we use? And um, we don't have very much we can do about the supply side of things because, as as you know, um, it can be very variable in the summertime. Last year, we saw uh, record high temperatures, an increased uh, period of drought. So. One of the things in, in the lower mainland is we've been seeing longer and longer dry spells in the summertime, and those are increasingly warm, which means that uh, there's no inputs to the reservoirs. And so we are very fortunate to have reservoirs in our mountains. But the only way we can really increase supply is either to make those deeper, which comes with uh, all sorts of costs and uh, problems associated with that, or make more. And, um, and on that side, it would be hard-pressed to think about where would you make more reservoirs. And, um, you know, just as an example, Lynn Creek is a place in North Vancouver that uh, could potentially become a reservoir, but it's so heavily used by recreational people. Um, nobody in their right mind would start to propose that you put a reservoir there. So we are limited by the supply side of things. In the summertime, we don't have inputs, so there's very little precipitation, and we love that. Like on a day like today, it's it's going to be nice right. and sunny and warm, uh, no rain. But we know more rain is coming. In the summertime, uh, we can't count on that, and we can't count on the snow because it's going to melt earlier. So on the supply side, we're a little bit limited um, without creating more capacity. So really... Metro has uh, only a couple of other options on the downstream side, so um, we're probably not going to convince people to have shorter showers and um, uh, not wash their cars, not do lots of other things. So we use the same water supply from the the North Shore Mountains for drinking, um, but also for washing, for flushing our toilets, for all sorts of other things. And um, so this is just one measure that they can take. Um, and so they don't really have very many levers at the end of uh, the consumer end of uh, right. the water supply. What about rain barrels, too? Because, you know, even the city of Vancouver used to have a program where they subsidized rain barrels for residents and they stopped doing that. I thought that was a great idea. 
it is a great idea. Rain capture is um, is something that's used around the world, and and it's surprising that we do so little of it here. Um, but a rain barrel doesn't cost that much. You can get a rain barrel for a couple hundred uh, dollars. Um, and that can go a long way to supplying water, but again, it has a limited capacity. And in some parts of the world, they actually use cisterns, which can be huge things, often buried in the ground, um, drain capture. And um, it, of course, has a footprint, occupies part of your backyard, so people might not like to have that. Um, the other solution beyond rain capture is to have things like a, a more uh, dry-adapted kind of um, uh, garden. So one of the odd things about North American culture, and it's really spread even beyond North America um, and uh, Europe, is this sort of fixation on uh, grass. And, um, you know, there's no particular reason we have to have an exotic grass species growing uh, as part of our uh, properties. Um, It could easily be uh, different kinds of plants. Um, There are many plants that are much more hardy and don't really require the amount of water that grass does. And, and, of course, the other problem with grass is when it turns brown, everybody you know, has this shock kind of effect. Um, oh, my God, my grass is <laughs> so We're so brown. judgy, right? <laughs> and um, so uh, most people also recognize their grass does come back. So it is a pretty hardy plant overall. So it's not going to die. It's, it's, um, it's just not going to look nice for a little while. But one could get around to that with uh, different kinds of plantings. And there are certainly lots of cities um, in drier parts of North America where they have really just embraced this idea of, well, we don't have to have Kentucky bluegrass lawns. We could have other kinds of plants uh, making up our garden. I love this. That's another solution as well. I love that idea. I'm experimenting this year with turning a part of my yard into a gravel garden to see how that works out. That's for another day. Uh, Listen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Appreciate that. Dr. John S. Richardson is a professor at UBC in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. Yes, I'm experimenting, turning part of my yard into a gravel garden. If you've got any thoughts, ideas, suggestions for me, I would welcome it. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about the numbers here, the numbers of COVID-19. So we know that this week we are moving from weekly COVID-19 reporting. We are not going to have daily case numbers anymore. We're going to be getting them once a week. And we're also kind of changing how we classify COVID-19. Now, all of this comes as we're getting like a slight rise in hospitalizations, case counts going up a little bit here too, and yet we're getting rid of you know, the rest of our restrictions here. We are this at the end of this week, no longer requiring people to show proof of vaccination to enter a restaurant, gym, or any kind of event. Uh, Businesses no longer going to be required to have COVID-19 safety plans. So some big changes in store for us. But what are the numbers telling us about how COVID-19 is actually going? Joining us now is Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for being back with us. No, you're welcome. So what do you think about the way we're approaching this right now? Well, let's just start a bit with the numbers. You mentioned a slight increase in hospitalization. It's actually pretty substantial. It's grown by 30% over the last two weeks from around 250 to yesterday's report with 334 in hospitals. So that's uh, one sign that the um, uptick is happening here in BC now. Uh, Another sign is the number of cases uh, in, in individuals over 70. That's something that I've been tracking, and that is going up, and wastewater data is, is ticking up to in some of the Metro Vancouver area where it's being measured. 
On Quad Canada, we're seeing this uptick. We're maybe a little bit behind Ottawa, I mean, Ontario and Quebec. But the, but the BA2 wave that, that is coming up now is not something to, to ignore. Um, and we don't, and one of the hardest parts right now is we actually don't know how high it's going to get and how long it's going to last because that depends on so many unknowns, how much immunity is out there. So at any rate, I think right now we're seeing an uptick and it's something to pay um, serious attention to. Well, what are the numbers telling you then about how the next couple of weeks are going to go? Yeah, so we're we're seeing rises. You know, it's not a quick quick rise. BA two has been rising in number. Um, kind of, it was underneath the BA one wave, the first Omicron wave. We made it harder to see what was going on with the second type, the BA two type. But it's been rising in um, frequency pretty much over the last few months. And um, at that at that rate, we're going to see doubling in around uh, fifteen to twenty days. So that's not fast fast growth, but it is growth. And as I said, we don't know when it's going to turn around again. And what um, that means is without these protections in place and with um, booster shots now beginning to wane, I'm particularly concerned that um, our most vulnerable people will have very few protections going forward. So do you think it's a good idea to do what we're doing then is to get rid of all the last of our restrictions? Well, I was... um, very concerned about the lifting of masks, especially the lifting of masks in places that uh, people have to go to, transportation, grocery stores, pharmacies, things like that, essential services. By not requiring masks in those services, that's really reducing the layers of protection for a vulnerable person. And you can say, well, they can wear a mask, but that only gives you half the amount of protection as if everybody wears a mask because the virus is then prevented from getting out of a person's body a bit and prevented from getting into a person's body a bit. So I think essential services should be should have masks and businesses may step up and start providing that service, um, providing that safety for their customers. I think now with this uptick that we're seeing in B2, it's a good time to provide safe spaces for people to shop and to go to work. Right. Are there things about the subvariant that BA2 that concern you? Yeah, um, no, yes and no. So by and large, it's like BA1, it's about equally severe, and, uh, which means that many cases are mild, but some of them are, are deadly. Um, and it's about, the, it's very similar, similar immunologically, which means that kind of cross-protection between BA1, is, having had BA1, protects you almost as much from BA2 as it does from another BA1 infection. There's one thing that I'm that we're keeping an eye on that is worrisome. There was a report from Hong Kong of higher hospitalization rates in young children, higher incidence of croup and things like that. So that um, is something we have to really keep an eye on. So what kind of questions do you still have, given where we're at right now and what's going to happen in the next you know, week or so? What, mm-hmm. what are the questions that you still have? Well, a, a couple of things. that I was very um, happy to hear the report that um, our elders are going to be eligible for a fourth dose. We know that those boosters really ramp up the antibody protection. The antibody protection is the first line of defense that helps prevent somebody from getting infected in the first place. But the time course of that was recommended for six months after their um, last vaccine. And unfortunately, that's still a month or two to come for most people. So I, I, uh, one of the things I'm hoping for is that that will be accelerated. Oftentimes, these vaccine programs are first 
announced and then they get accelerated. And I think that's an important step moving forward into the future. And the other um, announcement was uh, uh, there was serology data, knowing exactly how many people were infected. Having that data in hand would really help us model going forward and predict how high this next wave will be. And yet we're getting less data moving forward. Yes. Yeah, we are getting less data. That's a concern then. It is. It's making it very challenging to, to provide guidance. Okay, so then are you, I guess the next couple of weeks, do you think then will tell us the tale of how we're going to deal with BA2? I think the next couple of weeks will tell us we have to deal with BA2, um, but I think we know it's coming. We know it's coming now, and so I hope that people will start acting now and start putting in those protective measures now. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Simi. That is Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia, talking about where we're at, essentially. We're removing everything, right? We're getting rid of our COVID-19 safety plans, no more proof of vaccination, and yet at the same time, health officials also admitting that we're seeing more BA2, that that's making up the majority, vast majority of cases now that we are getting of COVID-19. So it's still there. People are getting it, but they're moving forward. We are learning to live with this. We're going to get less data too, moving to once a week on information as opposed to every day. So what do you think of where we are at? Are you are you worried at all about the fact that we're kind of letting everything go this week? Or do you think, no, this is the way we have to learn to move forward? Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. So as of this Friday, British Columbians will no longer be required to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination to attend a concert, eat at a restaurant or go to the gym or anything like that. Those are some big changes that we have in store for us. So how did we get to this point? What was the information that we had that led us to go in this route? Let's find out more. Joining us now is Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. I'm going to spare you my acapella version of Tiny Dancer. You know what? I was going to. I was going to ask. I was good. Then I thought, you know, I should probably leave that for the, maybe know, next time. Auditorium, eh? <laughs> maybe next time. Uh, let's talk about these numbers. So this is a huge decision made this week. What led you to decide, or with health officials, that this was the right tactic to take at this point? So you recall about a month ago, um, it was announced that we would be phasing out the vaccine card on April 9th. Of course, there'd be a continued review of the evidence. And what we've seen over the last uh, number of months, really since the beginning of February, when hospitalizations hit their height of about 1,059 and uh, test positivity over 20% across the province, is the trajectory of those things came down. Now, it's flattened out now, but it's come down. So we're seeing uh, less COVID in communities than we did. And we're seeing increasingly the uh, more people uh, who benefit, if that's the right word, from antibodies, either through vaccination or infection. And so based on that evidence, uh, the decision was made to to eliminate certain, uh, um, both uh, change some guidance and also change some public health or provincial health orders uh, from Dr. Henry. At the same time, yesterday we announced, of course, uh, fourth doses for some of those who are most vulnerable to severe outcomes from COVID-19 and who received their booster doses, their original booster doses first, meaning all those over 70, as well as those in long-term care, those who are immunocompromised in the province, as well as Indigenous people over 55. 
So those measures have been ta- are being taken as well as we continue to deal with the pandemic. Now, the Green Party leader, Sonia Forestineau, says this is a mistake. And she says there's not enough information. Once a week for COVID data is not enough. She doesn't like the approach that's being taken here. What is your response to that? Well, that in BC, we've had a science-based approach from the beginning, led by our medical health teams and the provincial health officer, who is uh, both qualified and committed to dealing with uh, especially the most severe outcomes of COVID-19. We have legislation in the House under the, provincial, uh, under the Public Health Act that provides that authority to make those decisions. It has always been the view of public health in BC that restrictions may be necessary. And of course, we've had restrictions. The mask mandate was in place for well over a year in BC. Well, we have restrictions in place. We should have the least amount of restrictions possible to deal with the pandemic because restrictions have inevitably other consequences. So that balanced approach has been in place um, throughout that time. You recall that in March, at the beginning of March, when we maintained the vaccine card for a month, we received some criticism, some concern that we hadn't gone far enough, that other provinces had done it. But we've always had a slow and steady, balanced approach, and we've always adapted based on the evidence. We're going to continue to do that. And we're going to continue to have a process that's not uh, directed in terms of provincial health orders uh, by politicians. And who made that decision? Ultimately, politicians. We decided that in the Public Health Act, and I think it served us very well. The outcomes in B.C. from COVID-19 have been better than all the other equivalent jurisdictions and size across North America. And there's a reason for that. It's because of how people have responded. Not just what Dr. Henry has done, or government has done, or anything else, but because people have listened, have understood that a balanced approach was in place, and have adhered to the recommendations that have come forward. And I think that will continue to be the case. Why limit the amount of data being released, though? Why go to once a week and limit what's going to come out into the public? There's really no limit of the data. In other words, all the data that is key right now, the analysis of COVID-19 data around hospitalizations, around mortality, data around things such as wastewater, which we use to measure independently the trajectory of the COVID-19 uh, infection in the province and others, all that will be available. It will be available in a weekly report every Thursday. And that will provide people with more than enough information to find out what they need to do. The information, you report on it every day, Cindy, so you know this, doesn't change substantially from day to day. So providing weekly comprehensive information from public health is a good course at this point in the pandemic. And I know that um, we're used to the other thing. We're used to the daily Uh, case counts and so on. But the case counts that we give now are based on PCR testing. The vast majority of testing that takes place in BC right now is rapid testing. Everyone in BC, basically everybody, has access to a rapid test. So what we want to do is provide comprehensive information every week to see where the pandemic is going to the public. And uh, people will have that information as they have had throughout the pandemic. Okay, so what approach do you want people to take? Obviously, like, we can't forget completely about COVID-19, but what is the balance? The pandemic is here. It's with us. There are people in hospital right now, over 300 of them, test positive for COVID-19. And I think and that's a significant thing. There's still significant risk. We're in a pandemic. So we have to be, one, respectful of one another and respectful that everybody has different levels of uh, of concern and to be respectful of that. I personally, for example, uh, Simi, wear a mask in indoor public spaces 
except when I'm speaking, right? When I'm giving us providing a speech. Yesterday, I was at the uh, ALSBC AGM, wore a mask throughout the entire time, except when I, I gave a speech from the podium. So I think people have to be cautious. We have to be aware we're in a pandemic. It isn't over. More measures may be needed of different kinds in the future. The most important message, get vaccinated. There are 68,000 people over 70 in BC who haven't received their booster dose, who are eligible. They've been invited to take their booster doses. There are hundreds of pharmacies providing those booster doses. I want to encourage everyone in those categories who are clinically vulnerable when you're invited to get your vaccination, to get your vaccination. And finally, Novavax, which is a protein-based vaccine, which if people are concerned about the mRNA vaccine, and there are a small number who are, that is coming to British Columbia, we believe this week, call one 833 if you'd like to get that vaccine, and we'll, we'll arrange that for you as well. The vaccination is more necessary now than ever, and I encourage everyone, when they're invited to get vaccinated, to get vaccinated. It'll help them, their family, their community, the whole province. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Hey, anytime. Take care, Cindy. You too. Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health.